0: Welcome to the show. Sarah Safari was a fitness influencer herself before she started helping people build their online businesses, first as a business consultant, and now as founder of Influencer Nexus. Originally from Vancouver, Sarah spent a couple of years in Colombia before moving to one of my favorite places, Mexico City, where she lives as an expat while running her business. Sarah helps brands grow their businesses through influencer partnerships. And along the way, she has developed a spidey sense for fraud and ethically iffy conduct. Today, Sarah and I are going to talk about how hospitality businesses can work with influencers without getting taken for a ride. But before we jump in, we need to answer the call button. The emergency call button is our hotline for hospitality professionals and randoms off the street who have burning questions. If you would like to submit a question, you can call or text me at 850-404-9630. Today's question was submitted by Miley. Miley asks, "How many Instagram followers do I need to have before I can get a brand deal?" I mean, Miley just cuts right to the chase. Sarah, what do you think? Uh, well, I think that I like Miley's
1: style first off. <laughs> <laughs> To to get to answer that question, honestly, it's as small as a 1,000 and as big as millions. So it just really depends on what you're looking for in terms of the brand deal. But typically, both small and big brands, if they do it smart, they're going to be going for larger influencers as well as micro and nano influencers. So if you even get to the 1,000-point mark, you can start doing it. And even before that... You can start doing what we call UGC, which is user-generated content. So it's not at all dependent on your personal page, but more so the content that you create that brands can use, again, in their ads, on their website, on their social and across channels. So really, as long as you can create good, strong content, you can start right away.
0: Well, that's a surprise. I thought it had to be like 40 million followers before you could even get started.
1: Oh, we'll dive into that.
0: <laughs> you owned a gym and were a fitness influencer for a long time before you branched out into consulting. What drove that pivot? Like, what made you decide to move into helping other influencers?
1: Yeah, all of it was just that, what you call it were just small pivots that made sense at the time. So prior to that, I was. You know, really working for gyms, thinking that I was going to go to school to be the whole lawyer, doctor, engineer type thing, because that's what my parents told me that I should be doing. And when I opened the gym, that I knew I wanted to have a business, and I knew that was the best thing that I knew at the time. And so that did really well. But at that time, I didn't actually want to have a gym. I wanted to have an online business. And I accidentally stumbled into having a gym, which is a whole different story. (laughs) And so when I went online, I actually went online as a fitness coach, as a fitness influencer, and I started helping other people, you know, be able to get fit, get healthy, all that kind of stuff. And in the process of that, I did really well. And I did really well relatively quick. And I had a lot of people in the industry and my colleagues and people who are in mentorship programs say, you know, like, how are you, how are you doing this? Like, how are you getting these clients? I'm having trouble in X and Y way. And so I started helping a lot of people for free until it got overwhelming. And then that became my next business to help consult influencers and want to be influencers on how they can grow their brand build brand deals, but also be able to have their own business at the same time, which is very typical of many influencers. They'll have you know, a very particular offer that they have. Uh, and then they also do a lot of brand deals or few brand deals.
0: Got it. So then what was the motivation to move into influencer nexus? It seems like there's an overlap, but I know that this current business is a little bit different.
1: Yeah, exactly. So again, it was another pivot that felt like it made sense. So I was doing the consulting for about half half a decade with influencers, helping them grow on that side of the table. And now I'm on the other side of the table, so to speak, just because I started seeing a lot of the gaps, right? I started seeing a lot of the gaps between brands and influencers in the problems in communication and in influencer fraud in collaborating in ways that didn't produce the right type of results. And actually, in many cases, upside down ROI, not because it was the wrong influencer or the wrong brand, but because of how they were approaching the strategy of influencer marketing. So a lot of times they will give you analogies of like, it's not about the tool, it's about how you use the tool. Mm -hmm. And influencer marketing is just that. It's a very, very potent tool, but it has to be used in the right way in order for that potency to kick in.
0: So the job of being an influencer is something that has gone from like being reserved for famous people like you know, Paris Hilton was the first influencer, right? Kim Kardashian, all those people to being an actual career that people aspire to. How has the industry and the job evolved and maybe matured over the last decade or so?
1: Yeah, I think first off, I'll kind of explain why it's grown. And I think it's grown because influencers hold a power that is fundamental to brands and that's trust. So if we look back to 2016, influencer marketing was about a $1.6, $1.7 billion industry. This year, it's over $21 billion.
0: Good lord.
1: Oh, Yeah. It's, it's a really, really big growth. It's near a near 20X growth in less than 10 years, right? Uh, and a lot of reason for that is because it's a win-win. We know that something that doesn't work in the market isn't going to last. It's just the fact of marketing and how things work. <laughs> and so uh, the reason for why it has evolved so much, and before it was, you know, people have brand deals, nobody's really getting paid. Maybe some brands saw results. Maybe some influencers got paid. But over time, brands have seen the value that it brings, which is, in many ways, insta-credibility, brand awareness, and trust, if it's done in the right way. And the more that it has been done on both micro and macro level, the more results have been seen in terms of brand awareness, in terms of reach, in terms of credibility, in terms of what everyone talks about, which is the return on investment. And I think that's the reason why it's going to continue to grow at a pretty rapid rate. Some things need to change, but it's going to keep going. Mm-hmm.
0: It feels like also there are some concurrent changes in things like SEO marketing. You know, we see a cookieless future for advertising online that make influencers kind of the the ready backfill. Do you know what I, I don't know if that makes sense, but like some of the old tools don't work anymore. So, time to invest in newer tools.
1: Yeah. And also combine influencer marketing into some of the older tools that you already have, right? I think that influencer marketing works within the grander scheme of funnels, if you were to call it, right? So you can choose it to be the initial trigger or the trigger within a bigger funnel. But what we need to understand overall is that you know we know that it takes on average seven times for anyone to make any kind of action on a product or service, any kind of action, not just a purchase. And so, if we know that and if we can intertwine that with a little bit of SEO and a little bit of paid promotion, and then we got a Facebook ad here, we got a billboard here, and then a pin on a Pinterest here, and then influencer marketing a promotion here, that's when. It works really well in the case where you're really combining it with other marketing tools that you already do have in some cases.
0: Got it. We are going to talk about influencer fraud, what to do and not do and how influencer marketing fits into the overall brand strategy. But before before we get into those details i just i want to level set for our listeners how hospitality companies specifically can incorporate this because you know this has been around for a long time but it's still considered a very new tool in this particular industry so what are some of the ways that this could work for maybe large companies or individual restaurant, individual hotel, like what are your thoughts? Just write a marketing plan for us right here on this show.
1: (laughs) Oh, I got you. I got you, girlfriend. Um, Honestly, those are two different strategies. So for example, I want to give you an analogy comparing Netflix and YouTube. So Netflix and YouTube are both over $30 billion organizations. I think YouTube is currently beating Netflix by, by several billion, but very similar. Um, and Netflix has a completely different strategy than YouTube. So Netflix goes after like the biggest, best, uh, brand deals and the biggest players in the game, whereas YouTube goes after the niches. And so I want to compare that analogy and bring it back to the bed and breakfast versus the big resort right? And they need to have two completely different strategies. So let's talk about the bed and breakfast. They can go after the micro-influencers, the nano-influencers, the ones who are within the 1,000, 10,000, 20,000, 5,000, 50,000, all the way to 100,000. And then they can do volume of that and really focus on the niches that are really specifically focused on their demographic, where they're at, the types of people who typically do the bookings and do the bookings with them, versus the bigger uh, franchise-type, resort-type hospitality organizations that can go for actually both. They go for the celebrity influencers, the millions, the one, five, the 10, 20, Kim Kardashians of the world, if you want to call it, But at the same time, they should also be going with the micro-influencers. Because the strong thing about the micro-influencers that a lot of brands don't realize is that they hold a really particular audience. And typically, micro-nano-influencers have a very strong connection to their audience. Because there's less of them, there's an easier ability to communicate. There's an easier ability to build a relationship. They're more likely to answer their DMs. They're more likely to answer their comments. And when they do that, you know what happens? They build the know, like, and trust factor with their audience. The influencer is able to do that. And when you're able to do that on an intimate, literal one-on-one level, what happens is that people want to buy from you more. So there is a really strong strength in being able to use both celebrity and micro level influencers. And then for the bed and breakfast, they can focus on a little bit more volume, but within the micro and nano influencer range. And going back to the original question that we answered, maybe throwing in some uh, UGC content in there across marketing platforms that they already have.
0: Got it. That makes a lot of sense. You are an advocate for rooting out fraud in this industry. Can you talk about what that looks like and maybe also how disclosure fits in? I, that's something I'm really interested in.
1: Yeah. So, you know, when I first got into the industry, obviously I knew there was a level of influence of fraud. What I wasn't as much aware of was the degree to which agencies were using influencers with a high level of fraud. And just to define what that looks like and what that really even means, fraud is when an influencer has a level of followers and engagement that is not real. So they're typically bots that they purchased for very, very low dollar amounts to be able to drive traffic to their page. um, And they can do the exact same thing with engagement. So the issue with it is, let's say, you know, Big Brand A runs an influencer campaign. And typically, larger size brands aren't looking for immediate ROI because they know the power of brand recognition and visibility and they want reach and all those things. The issue with that comes in where, let's say, we ran 10 influencers and those influencers had on average 40 to 50% fraudulent following. And the brand campaign went really well, except it didn't go really well. And the reason why it didn't go really well because of all of those, you know, followers of the influencers that ended up landing on the landing page, a big percentage of them were just bots that were sent as high levels of traffic to those pages or whatever page you sent out. So it looks like what the campaign goal was, which was engagement, which was reach, which was landing page views, uh, is very high when in reality and you look on the back end there is what we call an upside down roi because if you paid $10 to keep the math easy for a campaign and you know 40% of that influencer's followers are fake you're going to be losing almost half of your ad spend on that influencer
0: and so how can that's how how can you tell a fraudulent influencer yeah i mean is it just that that the campaign doesn't perform like don't campaigns perform badly even if the person has all real followers or it
1: can but that's a completely different issue okay right? so that's definitely yeah so like not every campaign does well it doesn't and they don't do well because of all sorts of differing issues but this is this issue in particular is because there wasn't honesty between the influencer and the agency, and more so the agency didn't do a proper audit job because there are very easy ways to be able to tell uh, via tons of tools, whether it's a agency's in-house Uh, tools that they have, softwares that they have, or external, because there's tons of those available right now, that you can immediately find a report on, here's X influencer, here's their fake following, here's their engagement, here's their reach over time, here's their likes over time, and you can see all different kinds of metrics. So whether it's their likes between over the last six months, their engagement over the last six months, and you see You can just even look without software and see, oh, this post had 5,000 likes, but it seemed like the post two days before that had 200 likes.
0: That's the thing that I've noticed with like, I have some people that I'm suspicious have fake followers, right? And you can tell because they have like a million followers and one person reacts (laughs) to their post. I mean, that's not a real good ratio. Yeah. I mean,
1: aside from that, you can even see in the comments. So let's say they do have a lot of comments and you look and like, Oh, this person has 150 comments. That's super good. And then you look down and you're like, Oh, it's all emojis. And like one word answers. Like that's, that's not how a follower base is. That's not what influence means. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you can tell immediately who is a real audience, who's engaged and knows their uh, the person that they're following versus one who isn't, because the whole point of influencer is the person who can influence. Which means that the people who are following you, or at least a percentage of them, are invested in what you're eating for breakfast, what mm-hmm. outfit you put on today, what makes you mad, what makes you happy. They want to know everything about your life, and then they want to copy it. <laughs> so if that's not happening, uh, both publicly and privately, then then that's not an influencer. And so. It's very easy to navigate around with and without tools.
0: Got it. You use a metaphor about marketing strategy in general that's sort of like around a bank account. I think it's so smart. Can you describe that metaphor?
1: Yeah. So it's where I get people to think about marketing like they do their personal bank account. So we have a checking account which requires daily purchases, groceries, gas, food, rent, you know... Things That we want to buy for fun or impulsively, whatever you want to call it. And then we have a savings account, right? Or that can be your investment account. So it requires, uh, you know, long-term investment. That's going to compound in interest over time. And it's going to have its own benefits. The more you save, the more it compounds with time. Mm -hmm. So what I typically will say is that marketing is the exact same thing in, in terms of having two separate accounts. So your checking account marketing is you know your pay to play advertising, your performance marketing, uh, your quick conversion style marketing, your immediate outbound ROI based email marketing right And then your savings account marketing is you know your social media, your content marketing, your brand building, your influencer relationships, the credibility that you build over time. But it it requires patience and it requires time, which Mm -hmm. is what most people typically, uh, in in many cases, aren't willing to give. And what I see nowadays is many companies that are running their marketing strategy mainly checking account style Mm -hmm. instead of savings account style. And while there's a place for both, just like there is in your personal life, placing investment on the long term, I've seen... Over the many years I've been in the marketing industry brings a substantial higher return on investment than just focusing on the checking account style marketing. And if you look at some of the biggest brands out there, many times they don't even use their checking account. They focus many times on brand awareness, brand awareness, brand awareness millions of dollars, millions, hundreds of millions going into just brand awareness before they even do any direct call to action for the uh, uh, ROI. But if you speak to smaller brands, anytime, five, 10, 20, 30 people, okay, so what's immediate ROI going to be on that? Mm -hmm. And, And that's the immediate question. And while it's a very reasonable question to ask, the mindset around that is getting that immediate result versus what can I do to build that what we talked about at the beginning. The strongest trust factor ever, which, uh, which is brand credibility and trust, and do that over time through the various things that we talked about.
0: This sounds like a good time to take a break and learn about Cogwheel Analytics. Cogwell Analytics is a business intelligence tool for hotel digital marketing. Since the dawn of time, hotels have only been able to compare their digital marketing data against their own historical performance. With Cogwell Analytics, hotel companies can compare information across their portfolios in order to benchmark results. Because Cogwheel Analytics has mapped out data points for all the major brands from more than 20 different sources, hotels can stop creating manual reports and see everything from channel mix to social media to Cody, Expedia, and Google data all in one place. The time this saves gives marketers the chance to spend their time on things that actually matter, like strategy and action planning rather than creating spreadsheets. That sounds like a win to me. To learn more or schedule a demo, visit cogwheelanalytics.com. That's cogwheelanalytics.com. Okay, let's get back to the show. We like to make sure that our listeners come away from every episode of Top Floor with some very practical, tangible tips and ideas that they can try either in their businesses or their personal lives. You have excellent content on LinkedIn about what brands should and should not expect from an influencer campaign. Can you talk about a few of those things? Maybe what you see companies get wrong aside from just focusing on their checking account when they work with influencers?
1: Yeah, for sure. So I think uh, part of the time, it's it's hiring the wrong agency. right? And so... I compare this a lot to when I first started as an entrepreneur. I I had no business background. Uh, I I finished a health science degree, and then I I went into business not really knowing what I was doing. And so to make up for the lack of business knowledge at the time, I hired every consultant and coach that I could find, except every consultant coach had the promised land. And uh, I I believed it. And so I just did what they said. And the issue was, I, I didn't have an a system to be able to audit those influencers or not influencers, those uh, consultants at the time mm-hmm. and really figure out like, what are the things that they're doing right now that are working? Do I like their lifestyle and really just setting out, here's the way that I'm going to figure out if I want to work with this consultant or not. And here's how, you know, uh, I'm going to choose if I am going to pass on this person. And so bringing that back to the agency, I think a lot of the time the issue becomes where, Uh, a brand will hire an agency because they promise X or Y level of ROI without really going through an audit process. And then the other thing is what I call the Tinder of influencer marketing. And I've written (laughs) some content on that and it, it is somewhat related to the checking account, but it's a little bit of a different take on it. And it's the idea of you can't treat influencer marketing The same way that you do Tinder dating, which is here's this quick swipe. I'm going to swipe right. I'm going to get laid. I'm good to go. Same thing with I'm going to do this quick pay to play influencer partnership. We're going to get ROI, move on to the next one. And so the biggest idea is if you continue to do that, you're going to get catfished, meaning that if you try to rush these types of things, just like you would in the dating world, what ends up happening is you're going to get things like, fraudulent influencers. You're going to get things like poor engagement. You're going to get things like ghosting of an influencer because you didn't look into the background of the past campaigns, things that they had done. Were they trustworthy? Was there good communication? Aside from them bringing good results, very important. They're another human being, right? Mm -hmm. This isn't paid advertising. So it's really important to have a good working relationship with the influencers that you have. And so taking a step back and instead of focusing on it the way that you would with swiping on a dating app, really focusing on the long-term game, I think that the results substantially increase if you can just make that small tweak in strategy.
0: What advice would you give someone, an influencer who is just starting out or is a wannabe influencer and thinking about how to create an audience? Yeah, so first thing
1: I think would be like, pick a niche, a general niche, whatever you want that to be. Um, and it could be as simple as, you know, I'm a lifestyle influencer. I post about my boyfriend and skincare and what I do on the weekends. And that could be your main content, or it could be as specific as all I talk about is fitness or all I talk about is skincare or all I talk about is shoes because I'm obsessed with shoes or, or I'm a travel influencer. whatever it is that you want, pick a niche, And play with it for a while and then find out what you like the best and stick to it. And then after that, it's just the obvious of being consistent with high quality content, right? Algorithms love to punish you for not posting in the consistency that they would like you to. So picking a, a schedule that you can genuinely stick to and then doing that on a consistent basis And the third thing is, if you want to be an influencer, if you want to get brand deals, start taking the actions, right? Start talking with agencies, start talking with brands, get yourself in software directories, get yourself in agency directories where people can find you. Put your email publicly um, on your Instagram or on your TikTok. And you'll notice just by doing these things alone, you're going to start getting outreach.
0: We have reached the fortune-telling portion of the show. So we're going to predict the future and then I'll let you know if you get it right or wrong. (laughs) (laughs) What is a prediction that you have about the future of marketing as a whole?
1: Uh, A few things. I think that there's going to be a lot more standardization with an influencer marketing in and of itself. I think that right now is like it's like the wild wild west right for an ad market to actually do well there needs to be an established or a system for pricing there needs to be more established creative units that are mass scaled uh and there has to be more policing technology and practices to be able to eliminate things like fraud price gauging and those kinds of things so i think that's one of the biggest things is just standardization within industries that are growing as rapidly as influencer marketing. And then aside from that, I think that live integration content will see a really massive resurgence with you know the amount of digital content that's becoming saturated with AI. So for right now, we know that we can create... Tons of content in a matter of minutes, whether it's articles, whether it's video editing, whether it's cutting it up into pieces, blogs, whatever, I can do that in a matter of 10 minutes and have 50 pieces of content at my fingertips, right? And so I think that that will lead to a level of exhaustion and ignorance. So it will need to be mixed with live content. Uh, to be able to make up for it. So those are going to be the events, the conferences, these types of things will come in. Maybe you bring in famous people, bring in singers, maybe do something fun. Maybe people are taking pictures of their new X brand or Y brand as they're at the conference. And I think that that will need to come into play uh, to almost bring in the balance between the level of AI-induced digital marketing.
0: Good news for the hotel business, live events. That's where it's at. Yeah. Um, If you could... So we're both LinkedIn people. If you could wave a magic wand and change something about LinkedIn, what would it be?
1: So I'm a LinkedIn person, but I'm also a WhatsApp person. So like you said, at the beginning, I live in Mexico city, which means that everyone in Latin America uses WhatsApp because guys, it is way superior to (laughs) iMessage. Just try it. (laughs) And so what I wish is that LinkedIn had the feature that WhatsApp has that now iMessage has, but it's not as good where you have to hold on to the message and you can directly respond to the message that they sent you instead of, you know, did they send a bunch of messages? Then you send a bunch of messages and then you try to figure out which one you're responding to
0: that's the feature i wish linkedin messenger had i love that feature for sure what is next for you and what's next for your company yeah so i think continuing to scale but
1: more importantly really uh, moving towards instead of one-time campaigns and one-time results is helping brands build long-term brand deals instead of you know one-time really campaigns or whatever that might look like
0: Okay, folks, before we tell Sarah goodbye, we are going to head down to the loading dock where all of the best stories get told.
1: Going down.
0: Sarah, what is a story you would only tell me on the loading dock?
1: Okay, so I'm not sure how funny this is, but I'm just going to tell the story. So I was in Bocos del Toro during a time. I think it was immediately after I had closed down the gym and I was trying to figure myself out. And for anyone who's not on video, I just put quotes there. So <laughs> I went with my best friend. And at the time I was a fitness freak, like just a freak. I couldn't miss a day. Um, I annoyed the crap out of my best friend. I brought, if anyone knows what was called a TRX, it's like a portable exercise device that you can hang on walls and do all sorts of different exercises with. And I, and she had to suffer, because she would be sleeping at six in the morning and I'd be jumping up and down doing my stupid <laughs> exercises because I had to. And she'd put a pillow on her head and she'd be like, it's okay. I understand you're doing what you need to. Uh-huh. <laughs> and one day I felt really bad. So I said, you know what, forget it. I'm going to go downstairs. And we're on in Panama on an island at a hostel. So I go downstairs I said, I'm going to go for a swim. I went for a swim. I, I started, you know, I started doing my little thing. I look outwards and I'm like, oh, I feel like I'm a little far. (laughs) And so I was like, okay, I'm going to start swimming back. So I started swimming back and I got further and I got a little bit panicked and I started swimming a little bit harder and noticed I was getting further and further. And so... uh, Wait, so
0: you were swimming to shore, but you kept going further away from the shore. Yes. Okay. Exactly that. Yes.
1: I wish this was on videos because your eyeballs are hilarious right now. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I was like, okay, I, I need to figure something out or I'm going to die. And <laughs> not that it's funny, but that was <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it was, the tr- I'm going to die. And so I, I just, I started like vigorously swimming front crawl, uh, and and just just for context, like the most swimming lessons I've ever had was like maybe every every all of us go through some kind of a swimming lesson as kids. Maybe I did it for like a a, a couple weeks a month. Mm-hmm. And so I started vigorously doing the front crawl, and it wasn't working, and and anyone who's done front crawl for any intense period of time knows that you're like, <gasps> you're like out of breath. So I was like really out of breath, and I was super fit, like very, very fit at the time. And so I just decided to to turn around and do the back crawl. And I was going to go as fast as I possibly could and breathe. And I developed the strategy. I was was in kind of like death mode. (laughs) And so I went really fast. I looked over. I was a tiny bit closer. Every time I had a chance to breathe, I would go back into front crawl. I went super, super hard. Eventually, I got to a point where I was able to grab onto a tire. And I grabbed onto the tire. Yeah. The tire was like close. I was getting closer. I was like close to one of the docks. I grabbed onto the tire and I pulled myself up and I just went (gasps) like, I, I couldn't, I I didn't even know how out of breath I was in that moment. So I just took, and I just, and I knew at that point I was good. I knew at that point I was good because I could see the dock to the hostel. I could see the docks to the other hostels and I knew I was going to be okay. And I had time to breathe. And so I came back, I got uh I got into my hostel, I pulled up, there was a guy reading on the dock, everything was okay, everything was normal. My best friend came downstairs and she said, Where were you? Pancakes are ready. Oh my and God. uh that was that was it. Everything it was one of those things where you don't realize you come back and everything's just normal, but you almost died.
0: Uh, that is wild. Did was it a riptide? Yeah. Like did you ever find out what was happening?
1: I, 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 I mean, the, the tide was really intense. I had no idea. I, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't ask. I was just happy to be alive at that time. But I know for a fact, if I wasn't in the physical condition I was in at that time, I would have 100% been dead.
0: Oh, my goodness. Well, I have to say that I'm glad you didn't die on your trip to Panama. Sarah Safari, thank you so much for being here. I know our listeners learned a lot about influencer marketing. And I really appreciate you riding with us to the top floor.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thank you for listening. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 110. Jonathan Albano is our editor, producer, and all around genius. He even wrote and performed our theme song with vocals by Cameron Albano. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And your rating or review will go a long way in helping us give you more of what you like. Thanks
1: for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode.